0: Why may be the deepest, most profound, most asked question in the English language. Why does God allow bad things to happen to us? Why does God do what he does and why doesn't he do other things that we would expect him to do? I'm sure that Paul and Silas could have asked those kinds of questions. You see, they were directed by God to leave Asia to go to Europe to preach the gospel. So they did. Their first stop was the city of Philippi, and their first experience there was a good one. Paul spoke to a group of ladies who had gathered for a prayer meeting, and the Lord opened the heart of one of the ladies named Lydia. The Lord opened her heart to embrace the truth, to embrace the gospel. So things were off to a great start, and I'm sure that gave Paul and Silas confidence that they were right in the center of the Lord's will, doing exactly what he wanted them to be doing. Shortly after that, Paul was used by the the Lord to deliver a young gal from demon possession. So once again, that surely seemed like like a confirmation that they were right where God wanted them. But the next thing they knew, they were brought before the city magistrates who stripped them, had them beaten with rods, turned them over to a jailer who jammed their feet into torturous stocks. What had gone wrong? Weren't they right where the Lord wanted them to be? What in the world was God doing? I'm sure those questions would have gone through my mind had I had that same experience. Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 16 to see how they handle the situation. Acts chapter 16. And please follow along as I read verses 25 through 40, which will be our text for this study. Acts chapter 16, the final section of this chapter, tells us this story. Beginning in verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm. For we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now that we know the end of the story, and my guess is that most of you knew the end of the story before we read this text, but now that we have reminded ourselves of the end of the story, it's easy for us to have a positive perspective about it. But let's remember that Paul and Silas didn't know the end of the story when they were being beaten, when they were thrown into prison, and when they were subjected to torturous stocks, they didn't know how this would end. They didn't know if they would get beaten again the next day. They didn't know if they would be executed. They had never read Acts 16. So let's try to see things from their perspective instead of ours as we work our way through this very familiar story. In verse 25... Dr. Luke tells us, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. There was no way Paul and Silas could sleep. I'm sure they were in too much pain from being beaten and from being in stocks. Their backs were raw, and their legs were stretched purposely so that aching and cramping would set in. So what did they decide to do? Well, since they couldn't sleep, they decided to sing and pray. If this had been me, I probably would have been singing and praying the imprecatory psalms, which call for God's judgment of the enemies. But I don't think Paul and Silas were singing and praying those things from what happens as the story unfolds. The context indicates that their songs and prayers were joyful, Years later, when Paul would write to this group known as the Philippians and say in that famous verse in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always, no one would be able to accuse him of not practicing what he preached. He was rejoicing here in prison in the middle of the night with a bloody back and legs cramping and aching from being in stocks. That had to get the attention of of everyone in that setting and in that context because I'm sure they were used to hearing cursing and foul language instead of praying and singing. And that explains why the prisoners didn't flee when the earthquake hit. They were in awe of what was going on. Paul and Silas were praying at midnight. By the way, have you ever done this? I'm sure many of you have. We've all had times where we just couldn't sleep When you have those times, let me offer you a challenge. Pray. If you're like me, then your first inclination is to get up and start doing something, or you get up and, you know, check your email, or you get up and you turn on the TV. But what a great time to pour out our hearts to the Lord without distraction. Paul and Silas were singing and praying, and the other prisoners were hearing them. It is certain from what follows that the jailer also heard them for a while until he fell asleep. And that would explain why he reacted so suddenly after the earthquake. He knew this earthquake wasn't mere chance, happenstance. He knew it was directly related to what had happened to these men who were servants of God. And he knew that he wasn't right with this God. So verse 26 tells us, Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loosed. You almost wonder if this was a personalized, specialized earthquake. What I mean is throughout the rest of this passage, there's no hint that this affected any of the other people in the city. Now it may have and maybe Dr. Luke just chose not to tell us about it but it almost reads as if this earthquake was designed by God to get the attention of the jailer, and it did. Because verse 27 tells us, And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. You see, he would have rather killed himself than be subjective to what would have been done to him For letting the prisoners escape. The Roman government didn't take lightly to a jailer losing a prisoner. So this man was going to end his life instead of facing the torturous consequences from his superiors. Paul could probably see the outline of the jailer silhouetted in the doorway and realize that he was about to thrust a knife into his heart. And so verse 28 tells us, But Paul called with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. I'll think about this. If Paul had been bitter for the way he had been treated, and make no mistake, he was treated completely unfairly. If he had been bitter for the way he had been treated, he would have hollered, Jam it in, buddy, you deserve it. But Paul wasn't bitter. He saved the man's life by assuring him that all the prisoners were still present. It seems that all the other prisoners knew this earthquake or at least suspected this was related to these unique men because the prisoners didn't run away. They were all still present. Verse 29 tells us, Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. The jailer made the connection between these servants of God and this supernatural event. He knew it had something to do with Paul and Silas, so he immediately ran to them. He had already heard their message in song, just like the other prisoners. He had probably heard some other things about what they stood for, because he gets right to the point in the next verse, verse 30, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, this jailer had at least some information about Paul and Silas and their message. Maybe he had heard about the slave girl who had been announcing that Paul and Silas were servants of the Most High God proclaiming the message of salvation. And surely he knew that Paul... Uh, that that Paul had released that gal from demonic bondage because that's why Paul and Silas were in jail. It's probable that he heard the content of the songs Paul and Silas were singing, which tells us by the way he phrased his question, that at least some of their songs were about being saved. I mean, how did he know to ask this question? We don't know for sure what all he knew, but we do know that he knew enough to ask the right question. What must I do to be saved? When a person is genuinely at this point in his life where he is willing to do whatever is necessary to be right with God, then he's really ready to be saved. This guy was ready. He was willing to do anything to be right with God. Paul and Silas weren't the ones who were really in prison. This jailer was in prison, he was in bondage to himself, to his sin. And he's finally at the point where he will admit it so he can be freed. This reminds me of what happened back in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. Go back a few pages to that account in Acts 2 of the day of Pentecost. And in Acts 2, verse 36, Peter summed up his message by saying, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly That God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What do we need to do? When a man or a woman sincerely asks that question, it's a good sign. A man is ready for salvation when he's at the end of himself and is willing to do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to be saved. Let me show you an example of a man who wanted salvation, but he didn't want it badly enough to be willing to do whatever is necessary to be saved. Go back to Mark 10 for just a brief moment. The Gospel of Mark chapter 10. And by the way, this story is so important. It's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You could, we could look at it in any one of those three gospel records. But look at Mark 10, verse 17. It says, Now as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Well, this guy looked ready. He looked willing, but Jesus could see what was in his heart So he pushed the issue in the following verses. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he answered and said to Jesus, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, this man had not come to the end of himself. He refused to see his sin And he refused to be willing to do whatever was necessary to be saved. Jesus tried to get him to see his sin by pointing to him to the commandments. Yet amazingly, he had the audacity to say, I've kept all of those perfectly since I was a child. I'm sinless, is basically what he's saying. Jesus tried to get him to come to the end of himself by telling him to let go of his riches, but he refused. So he came to Jesus for eternal life and he left without it. Sometimes it's hard, maybe I should say impossible, for us to tell if someone is really at the point of being willing to do whatever is necessary to be saved. Peter's audience in Acts 2 was willing to do whatever they had to do to be right with God. And the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 was willing to do whatever he needed to do, but this man in Mark 10 was not willing to do whatever he needed to do. Now go back to our text in Mark I mean in Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> so he asks the right question and we know from what follows that he asked it sincerely genuinely wanting to know whatever the answer was whatever was necessary he was willing. He says, "What must I do to be saved?" And in verse 31 they said to him, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved." You This applies to you. This offers to you and your household. The gospel message for the submissive heart is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. When the heart isn't submissive, now catch this, especially those of you who are really interested in trying to work with people and shepherd people and and you want to be used to the Lord to impact people. When the heart isn't submissive, as in the case of the rich young ruler, the message seems complicated because you're trying to get through to the person. That's what Jesus was doing when he told the rich young ruler to keep the commandments and give away all his money. Jesus was trying to get through to the man, so that message seems complicated. In fact, who hasn't puzzled over Mark 10 are the parallel accounts of well, how was Jesus doing evangelism there? That seems like a strange way to do evangelism. Jesus was trying to get through to the man, so the message seemed complicated. But when the heart is submissive, the message is very simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's the offer that was made to this man And it was made to all his family members as well. And by the way, remember, in that day, servants, slaves lived in the household. So a household was not just, you know, husband, wife, two kids or whatever. We're talking a lot of people in a household often because all servants, are not always, but many of the servants would live in the household. So Paul says, listen, this, is, this message is for you. It's as if he's saying it's for your, your wife, uh, your kids, anyone who can understand this. Your slaves, your servants, it's for everyone. It's offered to them on the same terms. They also have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say it this way. The jailer's faith doesn't cover his household. The message is the same to everyone. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now why am I stating the obvious? Because some people try to use this verse, believe it or not, to support the idea that if the head of the house becomes a Christian, then that covers everyone in the house. This passage isn't teaching that. No passage in Scripture teaches that. The offer that Paul and Silas made to this man also applied to everyone in his household. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's an individual issue for every person. In his commentary on the book of Acts, Dr. Ironside tells this story, and I quote, Bishop John Taylor Smith used to tell how when he was chaplain general of the British Army, the candidates for chaplaincy were brought to him and always had to answer one question. Here's what he would say. Now, I want you to show me how you would deal with a man. We will suppose I am a soldier who has been wounded on the field of battle. I have three minutes to live, and I am afraid to die because I do not know Christ. Tell me, how may I be saved and die with the assurance that all is well? If the applicant began to beat about the bush and talk about the true church and the ordinances, and so on, the good bishop would say, that won't do. I have only three minutes to live. Tell me what I must do. And as long as Bishop Smith was chaplain general, unless a candidate could answer that question, he could not become chaplain in the army, end quote. Would to God that that were same, the same way today of chaplains around the world. Dr. Ironside continues quote, "There are so many people who say, I do not understand which is the true church, never mind." Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then some say, I don't understand the true nature of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Never mind. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but my life has been so wicked, I feel I ought to make restitution first for the sins of my past. Never mind. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm so afraid I might not hold out. Never mind. This is God's message to any poor sinner today. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, end quote. That's what Paul was saying here. Philippian jailer asked the question, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Verse 32 says, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They spoke the word of the Lord to them to explain to them who Jesus is, what it means to believe on him. Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. He is God in human flesh. Believing in him doesn't mean just mental assent to facts. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ is receiving him into your life to be your Lord and Savior. When he comes in, he not only forgives us of our sin, he takes sin's place as our new master. Those are the kinds of things Paul and Silas would have spoken to the family about, and the evidence points to the fact that everyone... In his household responded. Verse 33 tells us, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. This is just a little side note, but I, I thought of this when I was reading through this story over and over again. It's interesting to me that the jailer took care of the physical needs of Paul and Silas before being baptized. Now, let me ask you a question. If baptism were necessary for salvation, if baptism is what saves you, as some try to suggest, do you think Paul and Silas would have let this man take the time to wash their wounds before saving them? I rather doubt it. If you're not saved until you're baptized, then Paul wouldn't have let this man take the time to wash their wounds before he was saved. After all, what if another earthquake happened? What if he got killed? Oh, he hasn't been baptized. He's not saved. No, Paul had his priorities in line. Paul knew what he taught. Paul knew the gospel. Paul knew the truth. He would have seen to it that the man was saved first if that's really how salvation comes, but it isn't. So this is another indication that although baptism is very important, it is not an integral part of salvation. Verse 31 has already stated the issue in salvation, and that is believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. So when this jailer received Christ, he ministered to Paul and Silas, then he was baptized, and then he resumed ministering to them again. Verse 34 tells us, now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. To me, this is a perfect illustration of what James talks about regarding the nature of genuine faith. Genuine faith results in a changed heart, a changed life, a changed orientation. The Philippian jailer demonstrated the authenticity of his faith by putting some action behind it. I mean, think about this. Moments earlier, he had treated Paul and Silas ruthlessly by jamming their feet in the stocks. Now he's washing their wounds and caring for them. That's a transformed man. It's a transformed heart. Listen to these familiar words from James 2 about the nature of genuine saving faith. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but not, does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does that profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's how the Philippian jailer demonstrated the reality of his faith. He actually brought Paul and Silas to his house, gave them food to eat, and rejoiced with them. By the way, a Roman jailer was free to treat his prisoners any way he wanted to treat them, so long as he produced them upon demand. So that shows you the change in his heart. When Paul and Silas were delivered to him... He cruelly fastened their feet in painful stocks. Now he's caring for them and rejoicing with them. Can you imagine their conversation? I'm sure they were rejoicing at the way God had orchestrated things to accomplish his purposes. What an illustration of the way God takes tragedy and brings good out of it. But there's more to this story. Verse 35 tells us, And when it was day, the magistrate sent the officer saying, let those men go. Evidently, the jailer took Paul and Silas back to the prison before daybreak. But I guarantee you that he didn't put them in stocks again. His heart had been changed by the grace of Christ. He just took them back to the prison because he knew that they would be summoned the next day, and they were. But rather than being summoned for further punishment... The magistrates felt like sufficient punishment had been inflicted, so they decided to let Paul and Silas go free. Verse 36, So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent me to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. Now, we don't know for sure if the keeper of the prison here mentioned is the same man as the jailer. Possible. But if he is, then Paul and Silas had not told him their plan. Their plan unfolds in the next verse, in verse 37. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now, do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. What a response. One commentator I read said that Paul was using a little bit of spiritual blackmail. Well, I don't know if that's the best term for it, but it is true that he had the upper hand now, and he was using it. Paul and Silas had been treated wrongfully. They were uncondemned, which means they had not been given a trial or due process of law. They had, to ri- they had a right to a public hearing under Roman law, which they didn't get, and they had the right to be spared scourging which had been inflicted on them. And to scourge a Roman citizen was a crime punishable by death. So Paul points these things out, and he basically holds it over their heads. Now why would Paul do this? This doesn't seem like Paul does. Is this really some kind of, as one commentator used the expression, spiritual blackmail? I don't think so. He's not doing this just to get back at them. Why is Paul doing this? I believe Paul was doing this as a protection of the little group of believers who had come to faith in Christ. Without saying a word, Paul was saying, Listen, I don't want you to hassle these new believers. I don't want you to mistreat these new believers. And by the way, don't forget that I can turn you in for treating us in this unlawful manner. It appears that Paul was looking out for this new body of believers. It's another expression of his fervent love for and care for the body of Christ. I mean, think about it. He didn't use this right for himself. He could have stopped it. I mean, when they were about to you know, raise the, the rod or the whip to, to beat him, he could have said, we're Romans. Can't do that to us. He didn't. He didn't use this right for himself when it might have delivered him from a beating, but when it came to looking out for others, He exercised this right for their sake. What a selfless man. He never ceases to amaze me, no matter how much I look at Paul's life and study it. He told the keeper of the prison, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed, let them come themselves and get us out. And when they come, have them bring a piece of pie. Humble pie. Well, that's not what he said, but that's kind of what is implied here. Verse 38, And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. You see, it was a big deal, really a big deal, to mistreat someone who had Roman citizenship. Paul and Silas both had Roman citizenship. These magistrates were going to be in big trouble if Paul or Silas reported them. Verse 39 says, Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and ask them to depart from the city. I mean, you can, you can see what's going on here. I mean, they are just, they are scared and they are begging and pleading. And you can almost hear the magistrates talking to Paul and Silas. We've got brand new chariots out back for you to use if you want to go. They're convertibles with white rimmed wheels. I mean, this is in style. Go, just go. They're really making up to Paul and Silas, but Paul and Silas would have none of it. They weren't going to do what the magistrates wanted them to do. They were going to do what God wanted them to do, and that was to check on the new believers. So instead of just boogying out of town or beating feet out of town, verse 40 says, So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and then departed. Paul and Silas didn't leave immediately. They had the upper hand in this situation, And they were going to do what they wanted to do. And what they wanted to do was to encourage these new believers in Philippi. So when they got out of prison, they didn't leave town right away. Instead, they went to Lydia's house to meet again with the new little church. And notice what this verse says. Paul and and Silas encouraged the brethren and departed. Now think about that. Paul and Silas were the ones who had gone through the beating. Paul and Silas were the ones who experienced the stocks. The brethren should have been encouraging Paul and Silas. But instead, Paul and Silas encouraged the brethren. No wonder they were so greatly used of God. They were unbelievably selfless. But that wasn't the only way they showed their care for the new church because... The evidence points to the fact, not here in this text, but piecing together other passages in the New Testament, the evidence points to the fact that Paul and Silas left Luke here and possibly even Timothy to work with the new believers as Paul and Silas moved on. Paul was always thinking of others. What a great example for us to follow. As we close the message, I have two applications that I want to leave with us from this story. These really aren't anything new or profound, but they are reminders that I need on a regular basis. Number one, we need to continually remind ourselves that God knows what He's doing, that God is in control. That's easy to say, and it's easy to believe. When we're in the home eating good food, but it's hard to believe when you're in the prison and in the stocks. But you know what? God isn't any less in control when we're in prison and the stocks than when we are in the comfort of home eating good food. God knows what he's doing. He sees the big picture. We don't. That's why we have to trust him. And that is why Scripture says we walk by faith, not by sight. Sometimes, after our painful experience is all over, God grants us the opportunity to look back to see why God did what he did. But other times, we don't, see it, we don't see why ever in this life. And we won't see why until eternity. That's why the Christian life is a life of faith. And remember this, as A.C. Gableine says in his commentary on Acts, quote, but how many dungeons there have been since, with their uncountable victims, with tortured limbs, parched tongues, and feverish brow, prisoners who, like Paul and Silas, prayed and praised. But no answer came to deliver them. No earthquake opened the doors. They died the martyr's death, and heaven was silent to their pleas. End quote. In other words, be careful what application you draw from this story. Don't you dare draw the application that says, Well, if you just trust God, and if you just will be joyful in hard times, pray and praise the Lord, it's miraculous deliverance. No, it's not. No, that's not, that's not a valid application. God chose to do that on this occasion. But as Gabeline says, how many dungeons there have been since then with their uncountable victims, and heaven was silent to their pleas. He's right, but God is still in control, and we need to remember that. Application number two. We need to continually remind ourselves that God has placed us here on planet Earth to minister to others. That comes through loud and clear in this text. Even in the midst of their painful experience, even in the midst of their unfair treatment, in prison, unfairly, uncondemned, no doing nothing worthy of beating. Yet Paul and Silas took the opportunity God gave them to lead the Philippian jailer and his entire household to faith in Jesus Christ. And after they were released, Paul and Silas went to Lydia's house to encourage the new believers. Their mindset, that that was just their mindset. Others, others, others. They continually thought of others and just looked for ways to minister. Listen, beloved, whatever God is taking you through right now or whatever God may choose to take you through in the future, whatever it is in life, you just need to look at it as, hey, this gives me an opportunity to minister to others. Maybe others that I would, I would, if it not for this circumstance, I would have no contact with whatsoever. But God is taking me through this, and I have contact with these people. And here's a chance to think of others. That needs to be our mindset. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. That's a great verse. We want to excel in many different areas of life, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to excel, especially if our goal is for the glory of Christ. Maybe we want to excel in our studies, or we want to excel at work, or we want to really excel in athletic competition, or whatever it is. That's, those are good and noble goals if we want to do those for the glory of Christ. But sometimes we forget about this area where we ought to excel. Let it be, 1 Corinthians 14, 12, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. God has placed us here to minister to others. May God seal these applications to our hearts. Let's close. Father, this is a familiar story to many of us here in this room. And yet it is refreshing to walk back through it verse by verse, phrase by phrase, to immerse ourselves in the details of the story, to think about it, to consider it, to contemplate what you were doing then and how we should respond to what we see that is recorded in your word. Thank you for the example of Paul and Silas, their mindset of others, their mindset to bring glory to Christ in the midst of their completely unfair and immensely difficult situation. May we be encouraged by their examples to remind ourselves that you are in control, you know what you're doing, and that you have placed us here on earth to minister to others. Give us that mindset, we pray, in Jesus' name.